It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. Download that app and then you can listen anywhere you go. It is a great pleasure to welcome to the show today. I have the co-hosts of Story Keepers with me. And they first met some time ago at Carleton University at an event around storytelling. Interesting how they've come back to now uh, join co-hosting a show called Story Keepers, which launched in March of this year, 2021. Jennifer David. And Wab Gishik Rice is are here on the show to talk about Story Keepers. They have done a number of shows now, and the whole idea of this this show, of course, um, is to talk about Indigenous stories and have guests on the show to explore their stories. and uh, And they also say right off the top that. There's a spoiler alert because they go in and talk about things and give you spoilers uh, throughout the the, uh, the interviews that they do. So it is a pleasure to have both of them here. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about both of them as well. So Jennifer David, she's a member of the Shaplow Cree First Nation, and she was born and raised in the Omushkego Treaty 9 territory, but she has lived in the Ottawa area for the last 30 years. She has worked in the Indigenous Communications area of consulting uh, for 25 years and she was director of communications for the aboriginal people's television network and now works as a senior consultant for envision insight group in ottawa her favorite place when she was growing up in her hometown of Shaplow was can you guess it it was the public library of course and we're going to talk about that and their love both of their loves of of reading we'll get into that a little bit she has degrees in journalism and english literature from Carleton university and she took a course in indigenous literature and that what's that's what kind of sparked her interest uh, of looking into this world she's a voracious reader and in 2004, she wrote a book of interviews with Indigenous writers across Canada. It's called Story Keepers and Conversations with Aboriginal Writers, and hence that inspired this name for this podcast. In 2010, she self-published a book about APTN, Original People, Original Television, the launching of Aboriginal People Television Network. She currently writes freelance articles on Indigenous art and artists for the National Gallery, National Gallery of Canada magazine. Wabgishik Rice is an author and journalist from Wasoxing First Nation in uh, Georgian Bay area of Ontario. And his first short story collection, Midnight Sweat Lodge, was inspired by his experience of growing up in the Anishinaabe community and won an Independent Publishers Book Award in 2012. His debut novel, Legacy, followed in 2014. A French translation was published in 2017. And his latest novel, Moon on the Crusted Snow, became a national bestseller and received widespread 
critical acclaim, including the Evergreen Award of 2019. Now, he started his experience uh, of journalism in 1996 as an exchange student in northern Germany, writing articles about being an indigenous youth in a foreign country for newspapers back in Canada. He graduated from Ryerson University in journalism in 2002, and he spent most of his journalism career with the CBC and uh, as a video journalist and web writer and producer and radio host. In 2014, he received the Anishinaabek Nation's uh, Debewin Citation for Excellence in First Nations Storytelling. And uh, he has since moved on to explore uh, his own writing experience. And it's a pleasure to have both of them here. And I could go on, of course, there's so much more to say about both Wab and Jennifer, but it's a pleasure to have them here. So I want to say, say go and welcome to the show, to Wab and Jennifer. Bonjour, Annie. Yes, hello. Watch and hello. <laughs> uh, great to have you guys here, and congratulations on the podcast, uh, Story Keepers. Thank, Thank you. you. It's been fun. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I guess it has been because you're still doing it, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you've had a number. Uh, you know, as I was looking through the the website, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the website as well because I really like the way it's laid out. I love the fact that you not only uh, welcome people to the show, you you talk about uh, your love of reading. You invite people that have that love to also explore this along with you. You have these great episodes where you uh, talk about books, but you also bring in guests um, and and have them on the show to talk about these things and talk about the books that you're looking at. Um, you also have, I really like how you have the, uh, the books uh, shelf that people can go to to find out more about the books you're exploring and where they can find them. That's always cool. And... Um, and so you also have stuff about your, your guest host, which is, is really wonderful. I really like the way it's laid out. And I, I notice that uh, the way you describe it is classic and recent book storytelling. Uh, <laughs> can, you ex- can you guys explain that a little bit more for me? Well, you know, there is this uh, excellent body of work created by some trailblazing indigenous authors over the past like 40, 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, very influential and formative books by people, you know, like Lee Miracle, mm-hmm. Thomas King, Marilyn Dumont, Maria Campbell, and so on, right? So those are the books that inspired generations that followed. Um, and what we're seeing now uh, is, you know, this resurgence of storytelling from indigenous communities through literature and what we're seeing are books by indigenous authors crawling up the bestseller lists uh being nominated for and winning many major awards so those are sort of the recent uh, i guess modern classics you could say like you know the books that win awards and make the shortlist and so on um but there is this sort of long journey uh this narrative arc so to speak of indigenous literature and i think even though we only focus on one book a month i think that's all anybody has the capacity for really <laughs> um we want to help tell that story too you know of both the classic and the modern uh, examples of storytelling. So, uh, but they all interconnect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the modern authors, the, especially of the younger generation that we talk about and talk to have been influenced by the authors I mentioned before of the previous generations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they blaze that trail more widely for what we're seeing today. So yeah, it's important to bring all those books and all those people together in these discussions. Mm, okay. Uh, Jennifer, as I 
mentioned off the top, you guys go way back. Uh, I know Wob mentioned in a conversation you guys had in your first episode uh, about the show that, that you you may have met at Carleton University around a, a storytelling <laughs> event. Yes, we were. Uh, and I can't even remember who the professor was now. Maybe it was mm-hmm. Andrew Cardozo, I, I think. Um, it was it was a media class mm-hmm. uh, through the journalism school at Carleton. And it was on, I don't exactly know what the course was, but but the, a portion of that course had to do about, uh, about the media and the history of, you know, kind of indigenous media. And so the professor had both of us in and I was there to talk about what it was like to uh, launch and work with uh, an Indigenous television uh, network sort of media. And Wob was there to talk about what it was like to be an Indigenous person working for mainstream media. And so we just got chatting and uh, we got along really well. And I've, I've sort of followed him and uh, read his books as mm-hmm. well. And, uh, and had always had in the back of my mind that kernel that if ever I was going to, you know, move on this idea that I had for a podcast that Wob was going to to be the co-host. <laughs> <laughs> what, what came first for you? That love of reading that spurred the journalism? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I really enjoyed, I think, going back even further, just, you know, the experience of engaging with stories as a kid on the res, you mm. know, hearing from elders and hearing stories from family members and learning about my Anishinaabe heritage that way in my community is, you know, I think the foundation for mm. all of this that mm. I do now. Uh, and as like the years went on through my formal education, I became more engaged with like literature you know reading and writing and so on and that really I think took off by the time I got to high school Mm. and took like formal English class you Mm. know in grade nine and you know just uh, read books on a sort of deeper level in that sense and yeah that's really what's um catalyzed my I guess passion for reading and and that turned into an interest in creative writing as well Mm. and you know I didn't really see how that could be uh, any sort of career or any sort of other creative path forward other than a hobby right but as I mentioned in the podcast I had this aunt uh, my auntie Elaine who uh shared with me books by indigenous authors when I was a teenager by the Mm. time I I was in about grade 11, I think. And that, that really changed everything for me. You know, it really uh, showed me that our experiences could be shared in literature and that, you know, I could be empowered to try it on my own and maybe one day uh, become a published writer. And yeah, this is all before I got any sort of journalistic experience. Um, that happened, as you mentioned, uh, David, during my Rotary uh, mm. exchange experience um, towards the end of my high school years. Right. Uh, but yeah, it was definitely the, the so, sort of storytelling through literature and oral storytelling too that um, predated everything else for sure okay and uh, Jennifer what about for you if I can ask you the same question well, it was the it was the love of reading for sure that came first, and uh, as you mentioned in the in the intro, you know I grew up in a small in a small town, not a lot of access to books. My my parents didn't read a lot. Uh, we didn't have a lot of books at home, like after having you know kids books. So it was the school library, the town library, and I I went through as many books as I could, and I just had this love of literature, and I did want to study um, English literature. 
literature at university. And my dad, who was a very wise man at the time, said, hmm. And like, he doesn't say much, but he said, hmm. And what will you do with that degree? And I, he said, will you be a teacher? And I said, heck no, I don't want to be a teacher. Mm. He said, oh, interesting. And that was all he said. So mm. I'm like, huh, maybe that might not be the degree I should get. So I literally did one of those, you know, in high school, when you see the guidance counselor and they make you do one of those tests where they figure out like what mm. job you would be good at. And so I did that test. And out of the end of it, one of the things was a journalist. I'm like, a journalist? I'm like, what really is a journalist, mm. right? Living in a small town, mm. um, there was no radio station. All we had was CBC radio. Mm. And there wasn't anybody in town that worked for that radio station. We had no TV stations. Mm. We had like a, a bi-weekly little newspaper and that was it. So I didn't really know what journalism was. And yet I thought journalism and what my idea of journalism was essentially that somebody would pay me to be nosy and ask people <laughs> questions and help them tell their stories. Like that was my idea of journalism. <laughs> then when I got into J school, I discovered that for most jur journalism jobs or news jobs, you had to like politics. And, mm. you know, I'd, I mm. had this idea of being this foreign correspondent mm. and traveling the world and I hate politics and I thought, you know, <laughs> I'm just not interested in right. news, but I, but I really liked the idea of uh, film and television. And I thought I might go into, you know, documentary or filmmaking, but I just, I just didn't have what it took to, to do that. So I decided that um, I would get into communications instead. And that's how I ended up at APTN doing communications. And I sort of fell mm. in love with that. You know, if you, okay. if you have something you're passionate about, I love to, you know, promote and communicate that. So that's where that came from. But all through it, I did have a love of, of reading. I loved going to other places, learning about, you know, different people and their mm. perspectives. And um, yeah, have always been a, been a reader. Okay. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And my guests here on the show are Jennifer David and Babgishik Rice, and they are the co-hosts of Story Keepers, which launched earlier this year. It is a podcast which you can go online to uh, hear, and uh, they have guests that come in. They talk about books. They explore the books, uh, Indigenous books I'm specifically referring to here, and uh, they bring in co-hosts as well. So it's it's a pleasure to have them here to talk about Story Keepers. Now, you know, you guys both were these rotary uh, correspondents, so to speak, uh, and, and traveled abroad. I'm wondering about how, how was that seen, I would say, from the perspective of your Indigenous upbringing? Because, you know, I know... I would always hear on Six Nations, many people didn't want to leave the community. They didn't want to, even for school, you know, they want to stay close to home. How was that, how was that seen in your communities and how, and why was it interesting to you to want to do this? So Jennifer, I'll, I'll ask you first. Well, first, uh, I think because I'm of mixed ancestry, and I mm. have to say it's from my mom's, not the non-Indigenous side mm. of me, I think that gave me that that lust for for travel and that love of 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 um, being adventurous. Mm. My dad, you know, we we lived, you know, on the edge of town uh, by the river, and my dad never learned to drive a car, mm. but he had his boat mm. on the river, and he was always 
always out hunting and fishing and on the land and he never wanted to travel. So I didn't get that from that side. So I'm, I'm thinking that it came from my non-Indigenous right. side because my dad would always shake his head. He's like, why would you want to go there? Mm, right, right. <laughs> so that's uh, that that's um, but but he always encouraged me to be curious uh, right. of the world around me and right. pay attention to mm. what was around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably like some people growing up in, I mean, again, I didn't live on the reserve. In fact, right. there was no reserve for right. Chapel Creek. That's mm-hmm. another story, which I hope to write someday in right. the future. So I grew up in the town and that was, and that's different. Many people growing up in small towns are some are desperate to leave, and sure. I was one of them who was right. like, I need to go somewhere else. <laughs> right. Okay, thank you. Wab? Uh, well, I had no idea what I wanted to do for college or university, and um, when I found out about the Rotary opportunity, uh, my parents were very supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought it would be a good chance to sort of, uh, I guess, disconnect from, I guess, Canadian education for a little while mm-hmm. and, you know, figure out my path. And, you know, all my friends and relatives on the res uh, were really supportive of it, too. They thought it was a pretty neat idea. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't know, maybe that was due to the era, you know, this was the sort of mid to late 1990s when I guess the world was opening up a little more. And, you know, my community is not Northern or far away by any stretch of the imagination, right? It's right, right beside sure. Perry Sound and yeah. it's only about a two hour north of, uh, drive north of Toronto. So yeah. I guess, you know, exploring the world wasn't too far-fetched of a notion. And having the opportunity to explore journalism as a result, you know, I was contacted by the Anishinaabe News, which is published by the Anishinaabeg Nation Mm. about a month before I left. And they said, hey, we heard you're going to uh, Germany for a year and we'd really like to know more about your experiences there. And that sort of, you know, was my first job in journalism. Mm. They offered to pay me to write uh, monthly articles for them about being an Anishinaabe kid in northern Germany. Mm. And so in that sense, I was really encouraged to sort of be myself as an Anishinaabe person over there and be an ambassador, you know, not just for Canada, but for our people, most importantly. And um, it was a really cool way for me to be empowered to uh, write stories, uh, share experiences, uh, but most importantly, uh, relay the truths about who we are, who we were back then as Anishinaabe, right? right? So, yeah, I was very encouraged to to undertake that whole thing. Jennifer, one of the things you said, uh, I remember hearing you say, was that you, you think there should be more Indigenous voices, more, you know, more of this kind of, of thing. And maybe that's part of the reason you were thinking this way back uh, I guess about 10 years ago I think is when you said you, you had this idea for this this idea of the show and uh, and sort of like a book club um, and I get the sense that you you also wanted I guess part two things one to encourage reading and and education at the same time would you guys agree with that Wab? Oh yeah for sure uh, and I think importantly to show that literature or fiction or nonfiction or whatever else are viable avenues for sharing indigenous stories and experiences, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and the best way to inspire people of all ages to explore that is to just show them what's out there and to have deeper conversations about the materials that, you know, have enriched our lives as readers, writers, and journalists, and our fellow guest hosts as uh, artists in whatever realm they work in, you know? Um, And I think with 
our show, that passion really comes through. Mm. And our approach, I think, really is, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like straight up laid back, but, you know, we don't have like an agenda by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. We just want to get people together who enjoyed or had deep thoughts uh, about a book and just sort of riff off that, you know, Mm -hmm. like we don't really script anything. Um, Mm -hmm. We just have some rough ideas of things we want to touch on with the guest, And we allow the conversation to unfold in kind of an organic way, much like a book club or much like friends or relatives gathering, you know, in a living room or around a fire or whatever else, you know, And of course, we're not going to totally replicate that in a digital medium like a Mm. podcast. But Mm. at the same time, we can hopefully open the door to other people to have similar conversations. Right. right? And I think that's what the underlying spirit of Storykeepers is, in my opinion, anyway. Okay, Mm. (laughs) Jennifer, do you want to add to that? Well, and this idea of uh, of of does it? Uh, we do want people to to think about uh, reading uh, reading Indigenous books by Indigenous authors, and yes, education, mm. because we know that for Indigenous people, it's a very complicated history and, and relationship with education, and we know that everybody is going through pretty much a Western mainstream education system, uh, and I think if this encourages people to demand that we incorporate indigenous voices into that education i think that we will have done a good thing mm-hmm. okay yeah. um i wanted to to ask about what what have you learned out of this process thus far what do you take away from this first season wob well this shouldn't have been so much of a surprise for me but i was sort of intrigued to learn about some of the common threads through the books themselves Mm. and through the guest hosts. Mm. And I think every indigenous nation, uh, you know, as diverse and as beautifully vibrant as they all are and distinct from one another, one another, there are some common experiences. There are some common storytelling threads through each of them, regardless of where they uh, exist on this land. And, you know, in a lot of the materials we've explored, a lot of the stories, whether it's poetry, fiction or nonfiction, um, a lot of them are a response to colonialism. Um, which is quite profound when you think about it. But it's also, again, as I mentioned earlier, not that surprising. But it's not just about, you know, exploring that trauma and sitting with it. Um, Each of the stories that we've explored talks about healing, talks about moving beyond colonialism while acknowledging its impact and so on, Uh, but celebrating ourselves as Indigenous people and our stories and how our cultures and stories and languages, albeit damaged, have managed to uh, thrive uh, in this modern era despite everything that happened to them, despite mm-hmm. genocide. Right. right? right. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, it really is a celebration of, of a lot of the things we really wanted to get to. So uh, that's been, you know, as I, as I mentioned, it shouldn't have been that eye opening for me, but it was at the same time, I think, because it, this has really been the first time I've had the chance to do this, these kinds of discussions in this kind of format, mm-hmm. you know, um, at CBC, you know, I was limited to just a few minutes at a time sure. on the air, you know, but here, <laughs> 
where we can go half an hour, 40 minutes on a particular theme or, or book. Right. So yeah. it's very rewarding for me in that sense. Yeah. I, I understand that. I love the, this long format show that I do for exactly the same reason. And I get so many mm-hmm. people commenting on the fact that they love it as well. It's not just a, a headline, you know, or a couple of mm-hmm. minutes to talk about yeah. something. Uh, Jennifer, based on what Wab was just saying about this and, and your idea of, of taking, you know, and developing story keepers, uh, looking to the future, what are you, what are you hoping and, and what have you taken out of this uh, so far? I, I agree with Wab. It's been fascinating to see the connections uh, between the different stories and the authors and, and the themes that, that come up. And Wab mentioned that, you know, response to colonialism. Yes, that, that we, we saw that. I'd say I saw two other themes that we saw in every book that we, that we talked about. One was family. Mm. Who is our family? What, what does it mean? You know, kinship mm. bonds. We create families, mm. even if our families were, were broken from us. What are those bonds that sort of bring us together? And the other was was this theme of stories and of storytelling that in, in all the books, the characters somehow are themselves, you know, storytelling or using stories or the importance of stories or remembering stories uh, as part of the, the actual book. So I thought that was fascinating. Now that we've done what nine, nine books, um, I think that 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 was an interesting theme that that came out of it. The other thing um, that I got out of this first season was how uh, we were so surprised with how popular the podcast has become. I, I really thought it would be you know just like you said, David, like a few book geeks, you know, kind of just <laughs> tuning into a very niche podcast. Mm. But we have since heard uh, in in Ottawa. Uh, Anyways, I know for sure, because I mean, that's where I'm based, that the school boards have been very interested in the podcast and they uh, sometimes assign those podcast episodes as part of their, you know, English literature classes. And and that that's that's quite thrilling. I'm quite happy to hear that. So that was a, a bit of a surprise. And we have way more followers than, again, I think that we had anticipated. So that's a wonderful thing uh, as well. And going forward, I think that's that's simply what we want to keep on doing. Mm. Now, I know that Wob is going to have to step back and he can tell you about that. We'll probably have fewer episodes, but that's because he, you know, he's, he's taking on his own mm. writing career and mm-hmm. supporting that too. So I, we, we I want to make sure that, that we support Wob uh, <laughs> and, and I'd love for Wob to, to get more exposure for his work uh, as an author through the podcast, right. uh, because that was one of the, the goals I hope that we would get out of it too. It's been great speaking with both of you. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to share the uh, uh, first season of uh, Story Keepers. And I wish you guys all the best with what you do in the future with this. And of course, uh, both individually in what you're doing uh, to uh, to move forward as well. Love the idea, Jennifer, of what you said that the schools are looking into this and, and you know, using that as a, as a resource. Wonderful. Great to hear. All fabulous stuff. So I, I congratulate you. I wish you all the best. And can we tell people how they can listen yes wob's the technical expert of this of our team (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, uh, it's available through most major podcast platforms so apple spotify etc um you can also hear it directly through our website storykeeperspodcast.ca uh and yeah you can find us on facebook at storykeepers podcast twitter at storykeepers pod and on instagram at storykeepers pod as well so find us all on social media um and 
yeah, you'll learn about our guest hosts and what we have coming up and so on. And uh, yeah, just shimigwech. Thanks a lot for your interest. My yeah, pleasure. me too. We also have book giveaways. So if you follow yes. us on social media, we like to give away uh, some books of the ones that we're talking about each month. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that, Jennifer. I did see that and I was going to mention it. So I appreciate you doing that as well. All the best, guys. Uh, Nyawa and Chimi Gwech for taking the time to join me on the show and talk about Story Keepers. It's been a real pleasure and I really thank you. And, you know, I was thinking, Jennifer, you and I go way back too because of your we time. We do. Hey, PTN. And, uh, and <laughs> yeah. Wow. And they are the voices of Jennifer David and Wabgishik Rice. They are the co hosts of Story Keepers, which launched earlier this year. And as you heard Jennifer say, and Wab say you can find them on storykeeperspodcast.ca and don't forget if you check them out on their show, socials you can also possibly win uh, some of the giveaways that they have online as well that is this portion of Moment of Truth I'm your host David Moses thanks for listening but don't go away we're going to be right back with more right here on the show after these messages now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses Element 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 FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Marie-Louise LaRue, and she is a professor of economics at the University de Quebec. And she's here to talk about an article she co-authored in The Conversation. It is entitled, Canadians Want Home Care, Not Long-Term Care facilities after COVID-19. So it's a pleasure to welcome Marie-Louise to the show. Bonjour and welcome. (laughs) Yes, hi, bonjour. (laughs) And we appreciate you taking the time to uh, join us on the show to talk about this. Of course, there was a lot of talk about long-term care facilities during the COVID beginning. And uh, so many things came out around long-term care homes. Not only, of course, the, the tragedy of the deaths that were happening, um, but also it, it really put a focus on the, f- the facilities themselves in terms of how uh, they were run, uh, how they may have been understaffed. Also, the, the pay wages being paid in these facilities. And, and we heard things such as uh, people having to go from one home to another just to make a decent living, so they'd go, they'd be more working at more than one facility in a day. Mm-hmm. Did you hear some of that? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, so, of course, that was a huge problem. How the, those facilities were understaffed, and with the with the COVID nineteen, it became even worse. So, mm. yes, this is uh, yeah. This was one of the main problem, and this uh, and what we saw in the news, all the images that uh, we saw in the news, mm-hmm. made people realize uh, what were the what were the conditions of uh, those people living in the facility. So I'm not saying it was always bad, but we could see that in many facilities, uh, I mean, it was not really like living a dream. Mm, yeah, right. Um, and now, before we go any further, uh, I, I mentioned off the top that you did co-author this article. Um, did you want to just mention the other people that worked on this with you? Yes, of course. So, uh, we are a bunch of uh, researchers, professors who have, the, who have done this. So, uh, there is Bertrand Achou and Frank Glanzer from uh, HEC Montréal. There is Minjun Lee from Carlton University and Philippe de Donder from uh, Toulouse School of Economics. 
and myself. Just going back to refresh our memory about what happened. Um, we had more than 80% of the deaths uh, that were mm-hmm. tied to nursing home and, and seniors homes, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and of course, then the media and because of COVID-19, uh, all that, all the light started to be shone upon the facilities as we found out about the living conditions, uh, mm-hmm. about these, uh, how, how the elderly and the, the, the dependent were in these homes and, and, and what they were being subjected to sometimes. And all, but also, mm-hmm. you know, going back again, it, it's a, it, it was unfortunate also to hear about um, the wages that, that some of these people were, were being paid because they are taking care of the elderly. Uh, oh, it's yeah. a very stressful job. Yeah, I know. I know. And this is a real problem because because of the, 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 the working conditions they have, uh, which is really difficult. Mm. I mean, they are difficult. They have uh, time schedules that are complicated and and also because of the low wages they mm. have. Uh, we don't see many people who like to engage in those type of careers. And uh, so this is uh, one of the main problem why uh, uh, we we saw that uh, in those long term care facilities, uh, uh, living conditions were really difficult for the elderly. I mean, it's not it's not that the it's not that the staff does not want to take care of those mm-hmm. uh, yeah. people. It's just that they don't have time. They are understaffed, and uh, yeah. So those uh, living conditions they are just a result of the. Of the lack of uh, of uh, working of of workers in those uh, mm. sectors. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, that you did with this, you did you partnered with uh, asking Canadians. It's a Canadian yeah. online panel survey that you looked at, and you asked people between the ages of fifty and sixty nine uh, about, I guess, how they felt about long term care homes and and what their idea was uh, about wanting to either have home care or uh, going to to a long term care facility. Facility, uh, when the time comes yeah so this is exactly what we did so we we wanted to we were interested in learning about individuals preference long-term care preferences and we wanted to to see how um, covid had affected those uh, long these uh, preferences for long-term care solutions Mm. And uh, what we found is that uh, around 72% of our respondents declared being less inclined to enter a nursing home when the when the times come. Because, of course, all the people that we asked, they were all... Um, they had no uh, disability. They were all completely autonomous. And so 72% of, uh, of those people said they would not want to, uh, to enter uh, a nursing home following what they had seen in the media. Mm. And, um, and in fact, they declared, like around 70% of them declared that their view regarding the exposure toward L risk in those facilities had worsened. So they, there was kind of a link between... Yeah. The, the inclination and what had happened during the pandemic. Now, given that, and I'm not sure when you were asking these questions at what point through the pandemic, I'm just wondering, do you think that a percentage of those people would would have been like a knee-jerk reaction, you know, without thinking it through? Do you think that some of those questions may have softened to some degree about what they feel? Yeah, yeah. This is something we cannot really exclude. That's true. Mm. But but the thing is that we ran the study during uh, fall 2020. So mm. it's true that we were still uh, under the pandemic, but it was some months after the first uh, wave of the pandemic. So we, we, we can... 
believe that our respondents had already thought through uh, those questions. And, mm. uh, and also one of our points in the study is to say that this event might affect them might affect their view toward even another pandemic or mm. even catastrophe or even toward any other catastrophic event that could arise um, in some years. So, so in the future. Yeah. So, so, so we, of course, this could be temporary, but we, we, we are not completely sure that it may not uh, affect permanently their preferences. Right. Did you get a sense at all uh, that people hadn't really thought about this prior to? So, so you're perfectly right on that. Uh, so this is a really good question. And in fact, the, the answer is not in, the, in, in that uh, survey, but in a, a previous survey that I did with some other co-authors. And we fact, and in fact, in that prior uh, survey, what we found, and we were really surprised about that, is that um, people in general did not want to think about those questions. Hmm. So we asked a bunch of uh, respondents, like hmm. around three uh, uh, two two thousand people, like a bit like in this survey, we asked them questions about their long term care. Um, preferences, their uh, saving behavior, whether they would be interested in buying long-term care insurance products, things like that. Mm. And what appeared in that study, and that was really striking, is that most of them did not want to think about those issues or even had very bad information about uh, uh, how would the system take care of them if they became dependent, if they would be in need of for care. So many of those people, they, they, they did not want to think about the question and they, they even had uh, false uh, perceptions of what would be the reality if they, be, if they became uh, dependent. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then that means also that the COVID-19 put in light uh, long-term care facilities and made people realize about a problem that they may face at some point in, in their lives. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> it sounded like people were, were almost afraid to think about their aging and their own mortality. <laughs> Oh, yes, that's true. That's yeah. totally true. And uh, yes, it's, uh, this is what we found in this uh, previous survey. And also when talking with insurers or with bankers and we were asking them about uh, uh, long-term care insurance products, many of them said that it was not really uh, selling to, do to talk about those issues mm. and that people didn't want to think about it uh, mm. uh, uh, in details. Yeah, uh, that's that's quite fascinating on its own. It sounds like there's more to research there. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, I, I think I I can do, I can do all my career on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You found that people wanted to say they're going to start perhaps saving more money. Yeah. Uh, towards so, in their so, retirement. So that's what we found. So about a quarter of our respondents uh, declared that they wanted to save more. And among them, uh, among those 25 persons, uh, the, the vast majority saved they say, said they would be saving more because they wanted to avoid nursing home. And then the alternative solution is to have home care. So which is uh, so this is uh, I, I mean, this is quite important because I think that there is kind of a political moment for for uh, public authorities if they want to implement some uh, public policies that would um, uh, foster own care solutions in different ways. I mean, there is like an avenue. Mm. 
during this process of the survey, did you get a chance to talk with people who may have already had parents in uh, and, and people in long-term care homes? And, and what kind of comments were you hearing back from their experiences thus far? Okay, so we we did not precisely ask this question mm. whether people uh, about uh, people having um, uh, their parents or mm. relatives in uh, suffering from uh, long term care from uh, th- that would be in need of care. Mm. But uh, what what we know from previous uh, studies is that in general, people know better about the risk when they incur themselves or when the, their family incurs uh, some problems of, uh, of uh, dependency. So what I'm hearing a lot at the moment with this uh, study being released is that people say, okay, uh, fa- fa- we, we were happy that our parents were in long-term care facilities. And what I want to 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 put in light is that we are not saying that long-term care facilities are not bad, mm. but are bad. We, we are saying that for mild um, levels of dependency, right. uh, there might be alternative solutions, yes. and also. It's true that some people would like to see their parents entering long-term care facility because they would feel that their parents are more secure in those facilities, that there is always someone to take care of them. But it's also true that some other uh, elderly or even their family, they would like to, they would like to keep them at home. And one of the problems is that uh, financially it's so demanding that they, they, they cannot, they simply cannot. So we are saying that it would be nice in parallel to those long-term care facilities to develop alternative solutions, also to 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 lower the waiting time that you have in long-term care facilities. That would be nice to uh, uh, to develop uh, long-term care at home. Right. Now, you said a number of things that we we want to address, but before we get there, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and my guest here on the show is Marie-Louise Leroux, and she is a professor of uh, economics at the University de Quebec, and uh, she's here talking about an article in the conversation that she co-authored. It is called Canadians Want Home Care, Not Long-Term Care Facilities After COVID-19. Now, one of the things that uh, that y- you just uh, mentioned there was cost, um, and um, and I'm wondering why it is that home care is so much more expensive than than having someone in a in a long term care home. So, um, so the the situation uh, in terms of tax credits and everything is a bit different between Quebec and Ontario. But let's say let's take the the, the case of Ontario. So, what we have figures, uh, we got figures telling us that one hour of care in um, Ontario costs between twenty three and seventy dollars per hour. So we can make together a small computation. In fact, I did that some moment ago. So we imagine that you would find someone to take care of your father, mother, whatever, mm-hmm. at $35 an hour. Sure. But your, your parent would need like five hours of care a day, which is absolutely not the full day. Huh? Right. And six days a week. So for instance, on Sunday, you would take care of him uh, yourself. Mm-hmm. 
So if you take the cost of $35 uh, per hour, five days a week, uh, sorry, five hours a day, yes. six days a week, yes. so it's uh, uh, $4,200 a month. Well, okay. Yep. And so for forty two hundred a month, and this does not even take into account that if your parents stay at home, he still has to pay his rent, his mortgage, right, right. electricity bills for the food, yep. for uh, hygienic products, everything. Mm-hmm. So you see, it's really not affordable for everyone, not at all. And and you can see that we are we are very we are kind of at the lower bond of the expenses mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. thirty five dollars was not that much expensive. Yeah. And and so that the, and that the, at the moment, uh, as far as I, I um, as I know, that there is no subsidy for home care in mm. Ontario. Uh. I see associations that are pleading for right. uh, for it, but they are not. I see. Now, the other thing that comes to mind, of course, is the numbers of people. And uh, you, you list some numbers in your article about, um, you know, between 2010 and uh, growing up uh, to the year of uh, 2050. And, yes. um, and and so there's going to be a large number of people that are going to be falling into this area of, of aging as, as well as needing some kind of care. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, in fact, uh, the, the, the figures you are talking about, these are the figures that we got for Quebec. So, um, a, a study that were done by uh, some people in, in HSC, also uh, uh, the, the, a group of researchers I'm, I'm working with, they, they showed that, uh, they projected that uh, uh, between 2020 and 2050, the, the, the number of uh, people needing uh, help with daily uh, with daily activities uh, would uh, double, so uh, raise and it would um, raise it would rise up to uh, um, sorry for my English uh, six hundred thousand. Yes, yes. Now going back to the the question you addressed earlier about the cost of home care versus long term care and having mm-hmm. someone there, uh, it, it, was that having someone in their own. Uh, residence, so their own home, an apartment or whatever, not living with you in your home. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, it's exactly what I was yeah. saying. Yeah. So if, but, but if someone were to have their parents uh, live with them in their own home and had a place for them, you know, uh, w- w- that would change things a little bit, I guess. Uh, yes, that would change things. So it changes things. Uh, uh, it changes things in the sense that uh, if, for instance, you would take care of your own father at your home, um, you would get some tax credit from mm. Ontario. Mm. But you also have to take into account that maybe you you would have to uh, to to leave your job or mm. to work partial time. Yep. And uh, so this is what we call in economics the opportunity cost of giving uh, care to your father. And uh, and um, so it's. Uh, so it's it's financially quite expensive for the families because in, in what we observe is that in general when you decide to take care of one of your parents at home then one of the one people in the household needs to uh, to quit his job so this is quite uh, right. this can be quite uh, demanding financially also Absolutely. and and also, there is this uh, psychological impact of taking care of, of your course, parents. So of course. we see more depressions of uh, people uh, among caregivers, yes. informal caregivers. Yes, it, it is. Uh, I can understand that. Um, people that may say we want to have home care 
that may not always be, you know, unfortunately the way it will work out for you. So we do need to address this. Absolutely. Exactly. And uh, so so I was talking about the the psychological cost and this Mm -hmm. is this is quite demanding for the people that take care of their parents or their relatives at home. And also it's even worse because they don't have the the qualifications. Uh, I mean, we we, we many of those people who take care of their family, they, they don't have any. Yes, um, uh, nursing um, de- uh, nursing mm. degree or yep. whatever, mm. and so they, they 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 don't have the proper qualifications to be able to deal it in in the most in the most efficient way. Mm-hmm. And and what I wanted to say is that also what we observe in the studies is that in general we see that the pressure is even more on women. Yes. So yes. most of the most of the care providers, the, the family care providers, the, these are the women, the, yes. the daughters or the, the even the daughters in law. Yep. And yep. so the, this pressure is even more on women than yes. men. Yes, I, I, I understand and I agree. I agree. Now you mentioned policymakers and you know how how things need to change. Um, is this something that you think policymakers will be looking at and will be addressing? Uh, I really hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so I know that. Uh, so in in Ontario, there are. Uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. The the, the name in English, but I know that uh, in Ontario they they are at the verge of uh, implementing a new uh, law on mm. Um, mm. on uh, for the reform of long term care uh, right, right. Mm-hmm. facilities. Yes. So I don't remember the exact name in English. I'm really sorry about that, but I know that they they, they are talking about replacing a, pre- a, pre- a previous law on long term care by a new law, and one of the aim is to um, develop the number of beds in mm, uh, right. long term care facilities right. to provide more um, more uh, workers to those facilities to develop uh, qualifications, etc. Mm. But the, you see, uh, and I'm sure that this reform directly comes from what we saw during the, the COVID-19. Mm. What, where I was a bit disappointed is that, okay, they, they provided solutions or at least uh, ways of reforming the system, but only for long-term care facilities. At the moment, I see nothing in Ontario regarding uh, subsidization of home care uh, services mm. uh, provided by some external professional. I'm not talking about the family. Mm-hmm. And and you see in Quebec, uh, there have been a lot of noise about uh, during last spring and uh, summer about um, uh, fostering uh, long-term care at home. And, and at the moment, I've seen in the news that they're not talking about it anymore. So I really hope that uh, they, they are going to pass some reforms to, to, to do something. And I was quite confident uh, late, uh, late uh, uh, last winter, but at the moment uh, I'm, I'm not completely sure mm. anymore because it, it seems like people have a bit forgotten about it, mm. at least in Quebec. Well, 
perhaps uh, doing these kind of uh, talks can help bring that back to the uh, yeah, I hope to, so. to the front uh, for people to think about. The other thing I, I know that we talked about and we heard about at least uh, through COVID uh, it had to do with the, the the physical buildings themselves. You know, the the inadequate air circulation or lack of air conditioning or heating, and you know those kind of things. Those are the kind of things that that should be done at, at the very minimum, so that the buildings are are well ventilated, so that there's clean air coming in and and we don't have the germs sitting around in, in the facilities mm-hmm. that could help, uh, you know, at the very least uh, in a situation like this. Yeah, exactly. But this comes with uh, the new the with the new law that they want to pass in Ontario. So mm. they want to to build new facilities and yes. also to renovate those. Yes. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's hope that goes right across the country and uh, and, yeah. and, and, and works so. itself out. Uh, is there anything else you can think of that you think is really important on this topic that we haven't touched on uh, just as we finish up? Um, uh, I don't know. I think uh, we covered quite, uh, quite a lot of subjects, but uh, just I, I would like to, yeah, to mention again uh, that, uh, yes, I think that what we learned from that study is that uh, uh, people would be inclined um, to, um, would like to see the government's uh, passing reforms going in the direction of uh, fostering home care services and uh, and uh, in fact uh, what we what we what I already said but I did not give the the statistics what we saw in our study is that more than sixty percent of people agreed or very much agreed with uh, a policy that would foster long term care at, at home mm. and uh, because of the pandemic they, they they became even more in favor of those kind of policies. Mm-hmm. And and I think there is a, a good political time for uh, for our uh, politicians uh, to 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 try to reform the systems and also try to avoid that a new that new catastrophe uh, mm. happens again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And let's try not to forget about what we saw during the first wave. Yeah, let's try. Let's let's make sure we don't. Uh, yeah. We shouldn't, that's for sure. Uh, you know, as you were talking there and thinking about, uh, you know, one, one uh, parent uh, or child uh, having to look after a parent that is aging and needs uh, mm-hmm. needs home care. Uh, I kept thinking about how there, we already have uh, life's a circle, and we have uh, we have maternity maternity leave for for parents. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why shouldn't we have that kind of service for when a parent becomes aged and needs that care? You know, it's same kind of that's uh, going full circle around. You know, but, but it's true. The, the, those kind of leave, uh, the, so those kind of uh, leave that you would take uh, to take care of your parent they exist already so they exist yes uh, in quebec and in ontario but uh, still even if you if you take this leave to take care of your parents there will still be a lot of expensive that uh, of expenses that you would have to bear uh, to be able to take to take care of him in a, in a decent way at home. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. may have to adapt uh, the, the, the house. You, you still yep. may need some uh, professional caregiver to help you yeah. with, yes, with your parents. So, absolutely. I mean, it's not enough. Uh, yeah. I, hear uh, and I mean, the, 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 the problem lies in the cost of uh, home care services. Those yes. are still yes. very, very much expensive. 
Certainly Very sounds good. like there's a lot to talk about and a lot to be looked at and a lot to be worked out in and around this topic. So uh, I want to say uh, merci beaucoup for bringing this uh, <laughs> article to our attention and that we had the chance to talk about it with you here on the show. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show to talk about this. Thank you very much. That was a real pleasure. You bet. All right. You take care. Yes. Thank you. You too. Right, bye-bye. Bye. That is Marie-Louise LaRue, and she was kind enough to take the time to talk to us about her article that she co-authored in the conversation. It is in, called Canadians Want Home Care, Not Long-Term Care Facilities After COVID-19. You can find that by going to theconversation.ca. Have a look. And that is our show for today. It's been a pleasure having you with us. Please stay tuned to our show coming up for tomorrow. We'll see you then. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.